Today, it's a conversation on elevating your toy photography on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel and got a great show lined up for you today, as always. The show notes for this show and every show that I do are available at the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. Just head on over there, find the show you're looking for. I write a little bit about my guest. I've got a sample gallery of their work and any links that we mention are also there. If you're watching on YouTube, right down below the like and subscribe buttons in the description, I've got all the links and everything. It's not the full blog post because there are some limits to YouTube. But again, you can head down there and find anything that we talk about link-wise. It makes it a little easier for you to follow along. If you want to see the photo, if if you're listening to this as an audio-only podcast, that's okay. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts in audio-only or video format. If you're app of choice, podcast app of choice supports video. But if you are listening to the audio only version, head to the website, you can see the photograph that we're talking about there as well. So that brings us to my guest today. I'd like to welcome to the show, Jesse Fireisen. Jesse, how are you? Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's, it's good to finally be on here and uh, talk photography with you. Yeah, this is so the way you and I met is interesting and ends out that we have some things in common. We are both Platypod people, Platypod pros. If you go to the Platypod website and and you look under Platypod pros, we're both there. You use the products probably a little bit more than I do in my concert photography, but I I love the products. Sure. And the way we met still kind of uh, is interesting to me. So I went on Twitter venting one day. Nobody knows why, but I did because. I just had a couple of times where I, I had some difficulty scheduling guests. And one of the hard parts of doing a podcast is I need a guest. And I always appreciate when everybody comes on, but some days it's really, really hard to meet the schedules that I need to release shows. And you answered back and said, dude, I'd love to be on your show anytime you want. <laughs> now, a lot of times that happens and I kind of know, thank you very much, you know, whatever. But Two things about you saying it is I already knew of your work. You're a great photographer. Thank you. And you have that kind of platypod connection. So I already knew that you were a pro from that point of view, although somebody doesn't have to be a professional, literally, quote unquote, to be on the show. But I want to start with getting to know you because there's a couple of things about you that are interesting to me. You are based where? I'm in, uh, well, we just, my wife and I just moved to New Richmond, Wisconsin. So we're in Western Wisconsin, about an hour's drive from Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Okay. So Wisconsin based, now I, I think of you and I generally reference you to people as a toy photographer, but you're way more than that. You're, you're a graphic designer, a digital creative. How do you describe yourself? Oh boy. Jack of all trades, master of none. I guess you could say that old, that old quip. Um, yeah, I am, uh, I do photography mostly as a hobby, honestly. Uh, by day, I'm a graphic designer and video editor, content producer for a software company. Um, and the photography thing, you know, I kind of started as a video guy. And over the years, as I've gotten older, I've just started to fall in love with photography, picked up a camera, started doing photography work, and started to really, really enjoy that, just experimenting with all sorts of different genres and just shooting everything I can, really, except for weddings. That seems like way too much pressure for me. I don't want to get into that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a number of wedding photographer friends and no, I DJed weddings for 18 years. 
No way I'm going to a wedding with a with a camera. <laughs> you you mentioned interesting because you, you remind me of Dana McMullen, a, another friend of mine, amazing photographer, lived down by me for a while, but he's now back home in, in mm-hmm. Canada. And that you started in, you know, you're a graphic designer now, which is what he and his wife also do. But you also mentioned you started kind of in the video side. You you studied visual communications and television production. You do kind of anything yep. creative. So what do you work on? You do websites, print ads, what? Uh, so formerly, my past couple of jobs uh, in my 20s and 30s had been small businesses. So in a small business, you are kind of a person who wears many hats. So right. yes, to your point, I was trained as a graphic designer and I would do everything from the website, uh, t-shirts, print ads, web ads, all that kind of thing. Um, and I had the video background and the, the place that I worked at in my 20s uh, it was a uh, low voltage company, custom electronics, where we did home theaters and, and lots of really cool stuff like that. I was really into yeah. that sort of thing. And I actually got that job as a temp job after I went to school to find a graphic design job. And then I, after like a summer of working there, I, I found a job, I got offered it. I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to take this job. When I went to put in my two weeks notice, it's a small company. They're like, Hey, actually we love having you here. We would love to do all that stuff in house. We're a small business you know, would you like to stay with us? And I was like, well, sure, actually, I love what I'm doing here. I love the people. I love this industry. Uh, absolutely. So, so I spent 10 years kind of juggling between being a low voltage guy and a graphic designer and photographer, um, or I kind of jumped the gun a little bit there. The photography part came in when they needed someone to, to take pictures of our jobs, our job sites, our, all the TVs we mounted, all the, the home theaters we, we built and installed right. and stuff. So that's kind of where I never, I went to school for a little bit of the video stuff and television production, but I really never went down that road actually after, after school. So, so, okay. I've had you're you're the second toy photographer I've had on the show. Mitchell Wu was back on the show in 2020. Yes, yep. Who is, by the way, folks, if you don't Amazing. know Mitchell Wu, also a big platypod user, but if you don't know Mitchell, go look up his work too. Cause he's an amazing guy, but, but your path to toy photography, purely in the photography world, even, uh, you know, leave out all the graphic design stuff. Yeah. You went through outdoor and wildlife photography and astrophotography and macro photography and, you know, product and job documentation type photography. But yep. in your bio or somewhere I read that you said this was a matchup that seems perfect on paper, toys and photography. So my question to you <laughs> is why are toys and photography the perfect match on paper to you? Well, uh, so... For, for people who know me, they knew, so I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up watching action movies, sci-fi movies, back when things were, when there was a lot more practical effects in, in optical compositing. There was a lot of real world elements to creating those things. So, and being a, a child of the 80s, collecting toys and things like that when I was younger. So now being older, I don't know how I missed out on this, but the collector's aspect of, as you can see behind me, I've got multiple figures and things now that I've been collecting to actually shoot some of this stuff. So to find out when I'm older that after I got into photography, that people were out there doing the toy photography thing, it it just seemed to fit. I I could not imagine, I could not believe that I went this long in life without knowing about this combination. And then, and then what I mentioned about movies and, and all the stuff that was done practically, you know, I grew up as kind of a special effects geek. You know, I loved ILM and industrial all the stuff they were doing back then. So it made perfect sense to take a figure or a scale model or something like that, like they used to do in the day and sometimes still do, and put that in front of a camera and just create create shots with it. It just, it all worked out. It's And 
So, and I just really love enjoy, enjoy doing it. It's really fun. Did you see the documentary on ILM? Oh, the sure. Early days? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So yep. good. Just so amazing yeah. what those people pulled off. Um, here's, <laughs> yep. here's a question though, because I understand the child of the eighties and the, I'm, I'm into this now and I, I, I love the collecting aspect. Might as well put the two worlds together. Yep. Purely from a creativity point of view, what is it about toy photography that ignites you creatively? Oh, it's, it's limitless. I mean, your imagination can, your imagination can go anywhere with the toy photography. I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be, you know, I do a lot of like Star Wars and sci-fi type stuff. It doesn't even have to be that. You could walk down the toy aisles or, the, or go to a model and find so many, so many things. Like it could be, uh, it could be a superhero. It could be a dinosaur. It could be a spaceship. It could be a battleship. It could be a World War II bomber. It, I mean, there's just yeah, so point. many, you know, uh, tr trains and cars and model. And there's just whatever you think of, you know, you can pretty much create it. It, it really can. You really can. That, that's actually an interesting point that we think of toy photography as being this, this fantasy world of toys. But my, my first memory of photography in my life, I was probably, I don't know, seven, eight years old, and my brother was into photography, and he used to take model airplanes that he would build. He'd dig yep. trenches in the backyard. He'd put the plane in there, snap the wing. He'd take like this steel wool looking material, stuff it in the wings, and it sure. caused smoke when lit. Didn't fire, it, it caused smoke. And he'd do that and he'd take pictures of it. So, I mean, literally with, we're talking in the sixties, he was doing that kind of, of toy photography. Do you have a favorite world in, in the sense of toys? Like, are you a, a sci-fi guy in star Wars world or what? Yeah. So star Wars is very big for me. I, I've, I've been a fan of stars. I grew up with stars. So that's, that's a big one for me. Um, just about, just about, I, I seem to gravitate towards anything from the eighties and nineties. So I, I you know, Star Wars, uh, Predator, Aliens, Terminator, th things like that. Action movies from back then are seem to be the things. Uh, what, what else? Ghostbusters, Batman, Ninja Turtles, um, all that kind of '80s and '90s type stuff. When I was growing up, is is really where I gravitate towards. So, just okay. The imagination flying and just kind of set things up and create shots, and which leads me to this, because in looking at your shots. The, I don't want to call them worlds, but the sets that you create, sure. right, are rather intricate, like a more intricate than a lot of other toy photographers that I see out there. There has to be times that you sit down and in your head, you come up with, oh my God, this would be, a, I could have it do this and I could have it do this. And then reality sits in and says, I have no idea how to execute <laughs> what I see in my head. So how do you approach? figuring out how to create a scene that on first impression, you don't know how to create. Oh, uh, that's, that's a great question. And, and it's funny you say that. Thank you, by the way, for, for talking about the sets and stuff where I actually feel I'm on the opposite end of that. There are some people out there making incredible dioramas and I just don't have the, the, the talent or the space to do that. So a lot of my, let's say the indoor photography that I do, I kind of had to keep it basic in many ways because I just didn't have anything. So a lot of my, a lot of my creativity, I, I sort of had to 
find ways to do a lot with very little in a, in a sense. Black bat drops, lighting, squirting water out of uh, little just regular water bottle um, type right. things. But and now in, in this day and age, now there's uh, so so if anyone in your audience is familiar with the Mandalorian from on Disney Plus, oh, yeah. they use what they call the volume, which is a virtual set. It's it's a it's a stage literally of, of LCD screens where they can project anything they want and film it in real time. In the photography world, that's be kind of becoming a thing, and a lot of people refer to it as as digiramas, I believe, digital dioramas. So I've done that a few times, where you take, you basically take a TV or an iPad or a, or a computer monitor, put that behind what you're setting up, and then you can project any any image behind your set right. and create a set extension. Um, I recently, I just did a funny enough. I just at the time of this recording, I it was close to WrestleMania, so I just did a shot of a wrestling image where my wife and I are kind of wrestling geese. We went to Monday Night Raw about it. Oh, it was last fall. And I took, as I'm there shooting shots with my phone of the action, I also turned around and shot a couple shots of the crowd. So then I took that crowd shot, put it behind a ring, a, a little diorama of the ring and a character, you know, so it kind of created that virtual background and set extension, if you will. And um, so, yeah, that that's always quite a challenge to to have an idea in your mind and then how do you execute it? You know, how do you pull it off? So I, I don't know if that really answered your question, Steve. No, it, it totally does. And actually the, the digirama idea, I just read an article on yesterday. Oh, it just came up in my newsfeed. And it's funny. Uh, one of the arenas that I shoot at Toyota arena here in Southern California, uh, I do some of their house photography and they had AEW uh, yeah, sure. wrestling. And so yep. I got to go photograph that. With oh, fun. credentials, and it was awesome because I'm not normally a wrestling guy, but gosh, it was so fun to shoot. So you have, <laughs> before we get into today's image and kind of break that down, sure. there's something I read about you that I found interesting. I'm not sure I understand how the origins of this or, or, or how this came about. There is a book done for charity called Stop Wars instead of Star Wars. Uh, yes. Stop Wars. It's a collection of photos produced by over 50 different toy photographers from across the globe. This is, I don't believe it's your project, but you're in this project. It's available on Amazon, by the way, folks, if you want to go look it up. I've I've got links in the show notes. Tell me a little bit about that book. Yeah, so that book, yeah, and you're right. It's not my project, and forgive me, I am blanking. Uh, who reached out to me? I am so sorry. Oh, it's I'm, I'm blanking. Anyway, so the way that came about for me is that the, the toy photography community online is actually one of the is one of the greatest online communities. When you think think of the world of online communities and, and the people you might run into, the toy photography one is incredibly supportive, enthusiastic. Everyone's helping each other out. Everyone's pushing each other to do better. Uh, it, it's a great community. And I and someone reached out to me, actually, and asked if I wanted to be a part of it. And of course, instantly, I'm like, yeah, what, what do I have to do? Um, so yeah, so about 50 of us, as you mentioned, we all sort of donated, I guess, if you will, some, some photography of stuff that we've done. And we, and they put together a book and a hundred percent of the charities go to, oh shoot, uh, I'm forgetting. It, it's all going to help the war in Ukraine. So it's all going, it's, oh man, I should have prepped for this. Again, the link is going to be in the show notes. So folks, you can oh, always click perfect. the link okay. and go, you know, go read up on the book with an interesting idea that even the title I kind of dig, uh, so let's get into today's shot. Before we do, Absolutely. 
just a quick reminder for everybody, this show is available wherever you get your podcasts. I did this a little while ago. I'm going to tell you again, audio, video only, YouTube, whatever you want to do. If you're on YouTube, head down below the like and subscribe buttons and uh, you will find all the links that we talk about there. Of course, hit those on the way down. Make sure you hit the bell if you're going to subscribe there. And if you're looking as a podcast, please, if you would, drop a star rating, drop a review. It's much appreciated. Pam uh, Stukenberg, who I follow and she follows me on Instagram, just left both a review on the audio only and the video feeds on Apple Podcasts. So thank you very, very much for doing that, Pam. I much appreciate it. So for today's image, this is an image that when, when Jesse and I were kind of going back and forth and deciding what image to pick, this particular image jumped out at me really quickly. And Jesse, you'll understand why, because you made this amazing Star Wars image and you mentioned Mandalorian. This relates to Mandalorian. Uh, as far as I know, you call this Grogu Rocklift, correct? That's the title of the file. Um, I haven't actually come up with a name for the image yet because as of this recording, I haven't released it. So uh, usually when I release images, I kind of come up with a little theme for it, but I haven't officially titled it. But yeah, we can certainly call it Grogu Rocklift for now. So th I've got so much to talk about on this image, and there's something kind of interesting in it that we will touch on that relates to when this show will be released, because we are we are recording this at a point where we cannot release this show because of a new product that you used in it. Uh, let's deal with the technical stuff first. Sure. You're a cannon shooter, correct? Yep. Okay. This was shot on, as far as EXIF data is concerned, a Canon EOS R. Correct. And what lens did you use for this? This one was shot on the uh, the new uh, seventy, the Canon seventy to two hundred f two point eight. Okay, the RF lens then. Yes, yes XF correct. data shows it at ninety two millimeters. White balance was manual. That's interesting. Do you normally set a manual white balance? If if I'm shooting with flash, I usually typically set it to flash. So this might have been an accident where I had it on manual as opposed to the flash setting. But uh, it was okay. probably manual, probably around 5,600, 5,800, somewhere in that ballpark, I would have guessed. Okay, so you do sometimes set a, a direct Kelvin then? Sometimes, not very often. Usually it's flash or sun, sunlight or cloudy or... Okay, uh, shutter speed it shows at 125th, uh, 1-125th, aperture at F4, ISO at 100. So let's start there. Sure. When you're and and we're gonna, I've got some behind the scenes shots that I'll show folks, so you'll better understand how this was assembled here in just a minute. But I just want to talk about the technical stuff, because even though these are toys that are effectively not moving, what made you choose an aperture of f four? The the one hundred ISO makes total sense. Yep. You know, an aperture of f four and one twenty fifth for your your range of exposure. So the one twenty fifth for me, that's usually. Um, so I'm a Kelby one member. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the audience knows who Scott Kelby and Kelby one is here. Oh yeah. Um, and, and a lot of my photography training kind of came from Kelby one. So Scott Kelby has sort of his recipe for starting with flash and I've really adopted it where I typically start whenever I'm doing flash photography, um, in like a studio type indoor situation, I usually start at F 5.6 ISO 100 and a shutter speed of one, one so that's where the 125th comes from in this instance. Um, once I get those settings, I take a shot without the flash and I make sure I have a, a black screen. I just want a blank canvas so I know where all the light's coming from basically. So that's the one, 
125th portion. ISO obviously because I just wanted a, a nice clean image. And then the F4 portion came into play because I think I wanted a shallower depth of field. There's, there's, oh yeah, you can see the image. The rocks in the foreground, I wanted to kind of defocus. So, so you see them, but you're not really focused on them. Right. So it, it's really about creating a slightly shallower depth of field, but not going like all the way to 2.8 to get it too shallow. Um, so, so, so well, that's where the four kind of comes into play. Okay. And you mentioned Kelby one, I should say, I, I rarely mention this on the show, but if you have not been to the website behind the shot.tv, I actually have discount codes on the website. There's a link in the top menu, discount codes, and I've got a discount code for Kelby one. Uh, these are not affiliate codes, by the way, I've got lensrentals.com up there and platypod on there and Kelby one on there. And there's some other ones as well. Flurn creative live. I think I've still got on there. These are just companies that gave me codes to give out to viewers and listeners. I don't make anything on them. They're not affiliate codes. Nothing benefits me if you use these, only you. And again, there is a Kelby One discount code in there as well. So before you describe the making of this shot, for those of you on the audio feed, I want to kind of try and describe this. And I'm going to start here because rarely do I, I, I really get super detailed on the crop in my description but this is a very wide pano shot and it makes the shot. This is a ratio. I took it in and I measured it. This is a ratio of 20 to 10. Okay. So two to one ratio basically. And uh, it really, it helps you understand the world that you are in. Again, this is Star Wars based, right? It's, it's, you're at ground level from your camera point of view. You're not up high, your camera is like somebody laying on the ground and you're on some Star Wars galaxy type planet. At the bottom of this shot, you see just a sliver of sandy ground of the planet at the very bottom. There are two large boulders that are frame left, one in front of the other one. And there are three boulders frame right. One of them is blurry and very close to you. And then two of them are not blurry and in the back. So that's where that F4 is coming in. And you've got small rocks flying around the frame as though they're just floating from the force. There's no motion in them. It's not like they exploded up. They're just floating in center frame, floating at exactly the top third of the image, dead center, is Grogu. And he's in his little carrying, I don't even know what you call it, but the little, what is it? I, I think they call it a pram, P-R-A-M. Okay, so he's floating in his little pram. It's open. He's sitting up. He's looking at you, and his left hand is reached out, right? And as though he's lifting all of these rocks up, like he's using the force to make these rocks come up. And the lighting here is key. We'll get into the lighting in a minute, but it's a very, very, very blown-out bright backlight. And yet, not so much that you lose from the wraparound light. There's light from the front too. You can see catch lights in Grogu's eyes perfectly as though it's a portrait, but that backlight wraps around his you know, holder and wraps around him a little bit and kind of brightens the rocks on the ground. This is a scene right out of Mandalorian. Did I miss anything? No, you're, you're right on. You hit on... Uh, many key points, actually. In fact, like um, the the genesis of this image really came from that little hand that you spoke about 
sticking out because this particular Grogu figure, um, so it's a six scale figure, which means, you know, if a, if you had a six foot person, this figure would be one foot tall, about 12 inches. So this little sixth scale Grogu is, he's gotta be like two inches tall or something, but, um, but he's, oh, a, he's really? a, that's actually bigger than I would have pictured even. Yeah, I, I believe I got him back there somewhere. Yeah, he's about two inches or maybe an inch and a half okay. or so. But um, yeah, so he's he's a static figure. His head does rotate, but that one arm is static out. So that's actually where the oh. original idea for this photo came from was just kind of thinking of photo ideas and looking at the different figures. And I saw that, okay, that looks like he's using the force to do something. So that idea kind of brewed in my head for a while. And then I don't know if, if, if anyone's, I won't spoil anything, but there's, uh, there's the Obi-Wan Kenobi show also now on Disney plus there's a shot in that show that I won't really say too much about that is kind of similar to this, but it's darker. So I decided th this originally was just going to be like a daylight desert shot. But when I saw the dark version, I'm like, Oh, I want to do the inverse of that. I want to do a heavenly bright style image of, so so that's yeah to your point steve the hand is kind of the genesis of where all this the idea of this shot came from really you know what's funny is i i watch mandalorian and this was shot well before this episode but and this isn't spoiling anything but there is a scene in one of the most recent episodes where grogu is lifting and moving what appear to be rocks at the time and you're right, you're right. I didn't it was that. so weird because they did that but this was shot before that scene. Yeah. <laughs> so that was fascinating to me, the way that that tied in. I want to talk about how you made this a little bit. And and sure. while you kind of describe your setup, I will pull up some shots, some behind the scene shots to kind of show people. But before people see anything in the from the behind the scenes, I, I want to I literally just hear it without a visual. Explain how you created this. Uh, like the technical side of it? Like the set yeah, what did you do to get this sure. to work? So, so uh, let's see, the set. So the set was originally created, I, I do a lot of my indoor photography just on a tabletop in the middle of a room, a loft. And I started off, I laid down a V-flat because I thought, I didn't think I was going to do the sand at the time. And I wanted, I knew it was going to be a bright white image. So I wanted the V-flat on the bottom of, or on, on the desktop, the desktop is like a, an unfinished wood kind of color. So I didn't want a tan, warm color kind of interfering with things. So I put the V-flat down first. Um, and then after kind of setting some rocks around it, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should do some sand. So I took, uh, it's called kinetic sand, I believe. And it's the weirdest thing. It's like this weird mix between Play-Doh and sand. It's it's just a really interesting thing. You can, you can find it on Amazon. So I laid down the sand, kind of patted it all down as, as much as I could. And then I took some rocks that I think some were from the backyard. Some I actually, well, actually, you know what? These rocks actually did come from a pet store, I believe, from kind of the oh. aquarium section from the local pet shop. It's Yes, that's what it was. The rocks on the ground were from the pet shop. The rocks in the air were the ones that I grabbed from, from kind of the backyard here. Um, cause my wife and I, my wife and I just built a house last summer. So there are still a few houses in the development around us that are being built right now. So I went literally next door and there's, there's no sod or anything. It's all, it's all construction. So I was, it's kind of funny. I was out there really early one morning, like six in the morning or something before work. And I'm out there, it's cold. It was, 
January, I think. And I went out there to pick some rocks, not thinking anything of it. And I couldn't get the rocks out of the mud because they were all frozen in there. So I had to go back in, get a little shovel, and I'm out there picking rocks. Construction workers are out there probably wondering, what the heck is this guy doing? So I got some rocks, um, kind of washed them off, cleaned them up. And then, let's see. Yeah, so, okay. So as you can see in the picture, I've got, uh, as, as Steve had mentioned, you know, I have a lot of platypod products around the house. So I took a platypod, um, and uh, I took a platypod and a platyball and then mounted the new platypod handle on top of that. So now I've got this extension rod sticking up and out of the platypod handle, I've got a whole bunch of goosenecks. And I'm basically created like, sort of like a stage type netting above the, the figure. And then my- Those are and, the goosenecks? Those are goosenecks. That is a web that of That make goosenecks your truss top. work? To hang stuff yep. from those are goosenecks. Oh my they, god! They I almost didn't held up by that. themselves, to be honest with you. Yeah, but I had to. You'll see uh, a second platypod uh, on the left side there that ultimately I had to kind of reinforce the structure. And then there's uh, the mini super clamp is holding them together. So yeah, it is this web of goosenecks up there. Probably oh maybe six of them up there. I think if I remember right. Oh maybe more than that. Maybe eight. But so so now I've got this webbing of goosenecks above the above the scene. And then one weekend, my sister-in-law came over and I recruited my wife and my sister-in-law. Hey, you guys want to tie some rocks up? And they're like, what? Sure, why not? You know, so, so there we are at the kitchen table one Saturday afternoon for about an hour. And we are manually using fishing string and we are tying little knots around little pebbles, just making a whole army of them. I think I counted, I think 32. I didn't use 32 in the shop, but I think that was about what we tied up. So I took all those, or I took all those rocks tied with string. And then I basically one at a time, just, I used, you can barely see it there. There's little white, uh, like sticky tack, thumbtack type stuff. So I would take each rock one at a time and just kind of adjust about the height I needed. And then I would use the sticky tack to kind of, I would wrap the string around the gooseneck and kind of seal it up with sticky tack and just check the camera. Okay. See how it's framed I, I, up. Look question, at it, question. Back. I apologize. Yeah. I, I got to ask this. No. So in my head, for those of you watching the video, you can see there are, you know, wires or strings hanging down, suspending each of the flying rocks. That is, first of all, what is that material? It's fishing line. Fishing line. Okay. Yep. And it's hanging down. In my head, I pictured you drilling a hole through rocks or something and tying it, but you literally just tied it around the rock? Yep. Yep. They're little pedals about the size of, you know, maybe between a dime and a quarter in circumference and uh yeah we there's it is kind of hard to see in the picture but if you were to zoom in you could kind of see i mean yeah they're, they're literally just tied tied around wow yeah i did not i didn't see that one coming for some reason i thought it would go through it there's a great overhead here though I'm so glad that you take um behind the scenes shots yeah, because shots. here is a great shot of the platypod that you have clamped to the v-flat and then you yep. have the platter ball and then you have the new handle. We should probably mention the handle to people because the reason we're recording this at the beginning of April, but it won't run until May because the product is not official yet. You're using a, a unofficial, you know, Beta a, testing a, unofficial yeah. release yet. It, it's a prototype, basically. I mean, it's a finished product. I have one here, actually, just so that everybody can kind of see it. This is the platypod handle right here. And. It's actually a very, very interesting kind of device 
as you can see here, or you may not be able to, let me grab my pen here. As you can kind of see here, this is the handle that I'm circling. And it's basically like a, like a tripod extension, which are on the market already, the tripod extensions. But I got to say, for my teleprompter that's sitting in front of me, I used to use a tripod extension. I could never find one that I liked. This answers every question that I ever had. It is extendable. The two parts of the base that the tube goes in, you can unscrew and make shorter. You can, it's got quarter 20s all over the place for mounting yep. stuff to it. It's rock solid. It's metal. It feels really solid in your hand, not intended to be a commercial, but uh, really honestly, like, I don't know if you can see it in this picture, but all around the top are quarter 20s. Um, and again, it comes apart at the middle so that you can make it half of what it is. Really, really well thought out product. And you can see it here. You can see just the top half. That's how far he's got it extended right there. And it mounts on uh, your any ball head. You can put a, a mounting plate at the bottom, an Arca Swiss plate, or in yep. fact, the base of it, you don't need to put an Arca Swiss plate on it. The base of this thing is Arca Swiss compatible which is brilliant. Yep. So he put it in the ball head, which in this case is a plata ball, but it could be any ball head. Yep. And you don't need a plate on it, or you can screw it straight to a platypod. It's actually a really, really cool idea. So to the people at platypod, great job on this. They announced this from when I released this show, they announced this on Scott Kelby's The Grid a week or two before this uh, show will go live. So with that in mind, there's there's one question looking at this image, this, this, you know, final image that immediately I had when I saw the behind the scenes shots that you made. When I, when I looked at these behind the scenes shots and went, wait a minute, he actually suspended, let me find the right behind the scenes shot. There we go. He actually suspended all the little rocks. There are so many people that would have done this as a composite. They would have taken a photo of a rock. They would have gone into Lightroom and they would have stretched it or done whatever and <laughs> composited this. You built a freaking world. So I'm I had curious. the tools in front of me. I figured, why not? <laughs> well, that's my question is, why yeah. do you want all of your shots? I've seen a lot of your behind the scenes stuff because you take them a lot. Why do you choose to do so much in camera as opposed to more complex composites and posts. You know, it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about old old movies in the eighties and stuff. I just love the 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 practicality of it. I mean, I, I certainly use Photoshop. I mean, there's there's Photoshop in this image. I won't lie. You know, um, I use it quite often. You know, you, you have your two camps. You have your people who love to get it all in camera, and you have people who love it all digitally. You know, and I'm I'm kind of in the middle there where I love shooting practical elements and then enhancing them and, and, and doing things with Photoshop. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It just, maybe it was the challenge of it. It just sort of, it wouldn't be, I don't know. Maybe it was just the challenge. And, and speaking of Photoshop and I did blur, I put a little bit of motion blur on the rocks. It may be hard to see on this feed, but so there is a little bit of blur like they're lifting up um, on some of them. Yeah. My favorite part on, on that is with the little bit of blur and it's up, there's also that bright light hits all the rocks. Like that's where to me, so when I, when I, before I do this show, every shot I'm going to do on a show, I take the time to sit back and go, okay, 
you know, what questions do I have on this shot? And, you know, what, what do I see that could have been done differently or, you know, maybe would have caused the shot to quote unquote work a different way. Right. And on this particular shot, one of the things that works for me is the super bright light under Grogu and above the ground, the way that it casts the, the rocks on the ground the way that it comes it wraps around Grogu and the rocks that are floating makes it. And all of that kind of comes into this compositional style you've got where this is a centered image, which is balanced by being the two to one ratio. And it makes me feel like I am in the toys world. I'm, I'm And by the way, another brilliant choice here is I am at Grogu's eye level. So Grogu is almost above me floating above me, but he's looking straight out at my eyes where I tend to look at the image, which is that top rule of third. When you're thinking about your camera position, your angle of attack, right? How do you approach composition to help the viewer be in this world? Does that make sense? You know, absolutely. Yeah. You, you nailed it on the head, uh, Steve. I pretty much all of my toy photography, I, one of my general rules of thumb is to always shoot at eye level of for the toy, eye level or below looking up at the toy. That is just that is just kind of one of the basic rules of thumb that really helps sell these things and make them look larger than life away. Um, yeah, un unless I have a creative reason for it, I, I rarely ever shoot above the toy. It's always put the center of the lens with the eye or down. G going back to your Kelby, you know, uh, Kelby One membership. Kelby would always say you photograph kids or pets or toys at eye level. And, and to me, that's what makes the, the super connection. I don't know what word I'm looking for. Sure, the sure. super connection that I have with Grogu here. And which then brings you, of course, into the lighting. I want to know how you lit this because here's another behind the scenes shot that I really, really like this behind the scenes shot because A, I see a softbox. I see your camera with the trigger with the 70 to 200 on your, by the yep. way, the wood on top of that workbench is gorgeous. Oh, thank you. It's, it's just a cheap Amazon desk. I found on Amazon. Really? I have several of them now because I really like it. Yeah. I have, I have a couple of them around me now because they're, they're very, they're super easy to put together. They're pretty portable and you can, as, as you can see, I've put two of them together there in the middle of my room to kind of make a, a big table. God, the wood looks amazing. Uh, but then you can <laughs> see the V flat and you can see the world built with the light in behind it. So, and, and you've got, again, let me bring the image back up here just a second. You can see catch lights in Grogu's eyes, which is what you need in a portrait. So it's, it's yep. if all else fails, this is a portrait that works. Explain your lighting to me. Yeah, and, and before I go in, well, to transition to that, another thing about the toy photography, about being at eye level is, another thing I often tell other toy photographers who ask me questions is, when I'm creating this shot, I am actually thinking about it not as a toy photo, as a portrait. So then I oh. think back to Kelby one and, and other things. So I think of the okay. rules of portrait photography as I'm doing this. So so to get to the lighting then, in this instance, I've got, I've got two uh, round soft boxes. I believe the back one is, I think, a 36 or maybe a 42. So, so it's backlight. So I would basically start with 
and I think uh, in there is an AD, uh, a Godox 8200 in there. That would be the first light I would set up and I would do a bunch of test shots just using that light. So then what size do you think that was? I was, I was looking at that thinking maybe it was a 60 inch. Oh gosh, no, uh, that might be a wide angle lens on my phone. That might be stretching it a little bit more. I believe it's, it's probably my biggest one is a 42 inch, I think. Okay. Which would, okay. And looking at it with that desk, that desk is probably close to four feet. So that's sure. Sure. Okay. So go ahead. I apologize. Oh, no worries. No worries. So, um, so yeah, so basically I set that up because I, I, I did want to just blow out the back. I didn't want to see any horizon or, or, or clouds or anything, just a nice heavenly kind of white light. So I would start with just that light and I would set up everything, start taking a test shot, you know, and, and at this point I just want to see the silhouettes and how it lights the rocks and kind of around the edges of Grogu to give them kind of a backlight. And then once I get that set up, then I'll go to the second light that you see overhead. And that's probably a 24 inch or maybe a 36 inch softbox if I remember right. Um, and I'll kind of set that up kind of a, off to a 45 degree angle, maybe up at 45 starting there. And then that'll be my, my, my key light essentially. And so then I'll take start test shots with that until I get Grogu lit, Grogu and the scene I should say, lit the way I want it. And, and that's also what provides the catch light in his, in his little eyes. So that backlight, though, is interesting to me because, again, when you look at the shot as a whole and that light coming through, the light does wrap around Grogu, it could very easily wrap too much. So how or spill, I don't want to say incorrectly, it could spill in a way that was not what you wanted. How are you controlling the spill there? Are you just basically because it didn't look like you know, looking at this behind the scenes shot again, it didn't look like you have any flags or anything up. So are you just literally no, using power? Yeah, that one was just power. And and I will admit the, the finished shot that you had been sharing that, that lighting, because so Grogu is actually being held up by another platypod under the sand. Um, and it's kind of interesting. So he has, a there's a little hole in the bottom. There you can see it. And there's an acrylic rod just, just like this one, oh, I've yeah. actually got a couple of them here. So I took some acrylic rods that I found on Amazon and I took a tap and die set and gave one end the quarter 20 threads. So now, then I took my platypod, screw the acrylic into the platypod, bury the platypod under the sand. So just the rod is sticking up holding. Makes sense. Grogu. So then, then in Photoshop, I, you know, I cloned out the the uh the rod that would typically be under and i also in this case i believe i used i believe i used on one effects to then enhance that light around kind of the base of what was hiding the the uh, the acrylic rod so there's a little bit of enhanced lighting there in addition to the to the backlight from the softbox okay let's go there then what yeah. else would you have done because one of the things i noticed looking at the the behind the scenes stuff is the rocks that are floating are more like what you pull in your backyard. They're brown. The yep. bigger rocks are more like what you would have in an aquarium. They're gray. Okay? <laughs> yep. So let's talk about post a little bit. What would you have done to this to unify all of this together in post? So the unified, okay, well, a couple of things. Um, as far as unification, I do a lot of, I've been practicing really hard at getting better at color grading. That's you know kind of the secret sauce on a t- a lot of this when you grab different elements put together different lights different color rocks when you color grade things or from what i'm learning at the time you know i 
in in this instance, I started by warming up the highlights. That's what kind of gives everything a little bit of uniformity. And I often cool down the shadows. And now that I'm looking at this one, I may not have done that. I may have put a warmer tone in the shadows as well. But that's kind of a layer, you know, the color grade is kind of a layer on top of all layers that then just brings everything together. And what is your normal post-processing workflow? You, you shoot a shot, you find the shot you want. Are you, sure. are you working in Lightroom first or only in Photoshop? Typically Lightroom first. Yeah, I, I, like you said, so I'll, I'll do my shoot, come back with all the photos that I want, and I, I'll basically organize them and catalog them in Lightroom so I have them all. And then I'll kind of go through, my, you know, a shot like this, I maybe shot, I might have shot 30 to 50 picks, I suppose, variations of this with different lighting and stuff. Throw that down to the final three or something and then finally pick one and then if it needs photoshop then i'll take it over to photoshop and do whatever effects and then i bring it back into lightroom and that's where i actually do my color grading more often than not because i just kind of like lightroom's color grading tools now better than oh with the with the wheels it's it's gotten the, way way better yeah 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 they used to have what the split toning i think they called yeah. it and, and now that they added the wheels um yeah I, I just enjoy that um so oftentimes if, if I can stay in Lightroom, I will. And Lightroom has gotten so much better with those, that new AI masking and all that stuff. You can, you can really do a lot with that and, and have a good time with it. But um, like in this case, you know, I had to remove, surprisingly enough with the backlight of the softbox, I didn't have to remove as many of the strings as I thought I would. I thought I was gonna have to remove each and every one, but that backlight just washed out that clear fishing. Really? In but, but you had so to clone it out on the little rocks though, right? Exactly. Yep. On the rocks I had to, and there might've been a few on the edge that I had to clone out, but I was kind of surprised when I opened the image. I'm like, Oh, great. I don't have to, I don't have to clone out all of those fishing lines. Well, the end result, seriously. Yeah. I could see this literally the first thing I thought of when I saw this was this could be the back card on a package where you buy a small Grogu for a kid. Oh, sure. Like sure. this could easily be the imaging on packaging for Mandalorian. Really, oh, really well done. So Thank you. yeah, really, really well done. I want to switch gears with you. Sure. I want to jump into a speed round. Answer these sure. as fast as you can with whatever pops into your head. What is your gotcha. top fo your top toy photography tip? Ooh, let's see. We already did shoot from below the eye line. Um, oh, I know. Don't go crazy with the, with with your aperture in a shallow depth of field. For, for my images, I kind of like to balance that like hyper realistic kind of where it almost looks like at a glance, like it could have been a shot from a show or, or a poster or a deleted scene or something. Um, I know a lot of people and, and I'm guilty of it myself when I got my first like F 2.8 lens or, or the old Canon nifty 50, that was a 1.8. I would just crank it down to 2.8 or 1.8 all the time. The shallowest depth of field of I could, um, but, but if you're going for that kind of realistic look, that shallow depth of field doesn't quite scale right. So you kind of have to back off on it a little bit. You know, I, I shot this one at F4 and, and oftentimes I find myself backing off even more at like F8, F11 to make things, give them the illusion that they're larger than they really are. Now, like uh, like in, in like scale model photography, you know, if I'm, if I'm standing on a runway and I'm at an air show, let's say, and I take a picture of a plane, the plane is probably pretty close to, from the nose to the tail, it's probably pretty close to being in focus. You know, it wouldn't be 
you wouldn't really have a shallow depth of field on that. So the same thing goes with the model spaceship or something, you know, don't, don't stop down too much that the, that all you get is maybe the cockpit in focus, you know, kind of open that, open that depth of field a little bit more. So you, you get more of a focus, you kind of give the illusion of scale, make things look larger than they really are. Yeah, it makes sense. Our eyes don't see as shallow as 2.8. I mean, when you see a portrait exactly, yep. and the eyes are in focus, but the tip of the nose and the ears are yep, not, yep. that's not exactly. how we see as humans. So if you want it realistic, makes sense. Biggest photo yep. mistake you made or almost made? Ooh. Biggest photo mistake. Oh, shoot. Um, going too far with the edit. I used to do that oh. a lot. Um, and that's, that's another one of my top tips that I typically tell people is you do your shoot, you do your editing, you're super excited to share it. But at that point, stop. Don't share it. Step away from the image, whether it's an hour, a day, a week, whatever, what have you. Because I guarantee nine times out of 10, when you come back to that image, you're going to see it differently with fresh eyes. You're going to, oh, this, it, white balance is a little off or too much saturation here. Or there's a, there's a speck or a piece of dust or a rock in a corner I should have removed or something like. So yeah, be careful with your edits. Any, anytime you, you do an edit, maybe back it off. 10% or something just from where you left it. It's so easy to overcook an image. And all I tell people yeah. is whatever you thought you needed for clarity, it's probably half of that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And what I usually do is when I make it to the end of my edits, whatever I'm going to turn into a client, I go back and I go through them all again. And a lot of times I go, wow, that that doesn't have the pop that I thought it did. I need more highlight yeah. or I need more whatever. Um, literally, 30 minutes later, by the time I get to the end and go back to image number one, hmm, that's not what I remember. So favorite composition yeah. rule, if you have one. Well, let's see. I guess I could go with the classic rule of thirds. Um, I use that quite a bit. Like in this Go Grogu shot, his, his eyes should be on the, oh, they're maybe a little above the rule of thirds line, but I guess it depends on the crop. Um, yeah, I'll go with rule third, sure. Favorite source of inspiration? Oh, music. Music. Oh, I love it. Um, oftentimes when I'm, when I'm working during the day, as I'm getting older, I'm getting away from the rock and I'm starting to listen to more soundtracks and, and podcasts and things. So a lot of times when you just, when I just hear certain musical cues or something, I, just an idea pops and I start thinking about it and it kind of grows and becomes something and... Yeah, so I'll go with music on that one. Okay. Favorite band or performer? Ooh. Okay, honestly, the first band that came to my head just now was Tool. Good choice. And they're going to be down here in Coachella uh, oh, coming up on the Sunday night of the, the – uh, What's the festival? I just gave away tickets to it on the air yesterday. God, I remember <laughs> the festival. Anyway, look it up. It's going to be, it's where Coachella is. It's not at Coachella, but it's where Coachella is. And sure, sure. Uh, they're, I think the ones on the Sunday night with Metallica. Uh, okay. Favorite Metallica drink. Metallica was one of the other ones I would have said. Uh, I'm sorry. Favorite drink. Oh, favorite drink. Um, I'm kind of a classic Jack and Coke guy. Fancy. Oh, okay. I'm a, I'm yeah. a big Jack fan. So that makes sense. Uh, nice. Favorite movie or TV show. Hmm. Well, we've kind of already discussed my love for Star Wars. Um, what else could I? Oh, you know what? I'm going to say the great American classic, Wayne's World. 
Oh, good pick. <laughs> is there any photographer out there? This is going to be the, the last question. Oh. Is there any photographer out there you think more people need to know about? Yes. Yes. I even took notes on this because I knew this was going to come. This was a hard question, actually, Steve. I didn't want to, there's so many, there's a lot of, I, I encourage people actually not to get off topic, but your audience to look into toy photography because there's a lot of incredibly talented people that oh yes there's just some amazing scott Bourne started doing a great job at toy photography and then mitchell Wu and yeah yep exactly um the, the one i was gonna say i i don't know him personally he goes by the name of harry but his instagram handle is it's kind of tricky to say it's like cinematographer but it's cinema toy toy grapher cinema toy grapher underscore cinema yeah okay to, yeah yeah um his work i followed him for a long time and he, he has the kind of shots when i talk about doing cinematic shots myself this guy just knocks it out of the park his shots look straight out of a marvel film straight out of a star wars movie he, just his color grading is so it's just so good it looks so cinematic it, it's it's beautiful work i highly recommend looking him up well if uh you want any of the links we're talking about, I will have a link to that photographer in the show notes, a link to everything that we discussed in the show notes. They're at behindtheshot.tv or in the description down on uh, YouTube. And by the way, I should mention those of you watching on YouTube, I'm saying this way too late, but always on YouTube, I have chapter markers. So if you don't want to watch the interview portion at the beginning to get to know somebody, you can easily jump around. I've got chapter markers done. If Jesse, if people want to connect with you, where can they go? What's your website, first of all? Absolutely. Uh, my website is jessiefphotography.com. Uh, check that out. I, I've i kind of gotten in the habit of posting something weekly that I s kind of set that challenge to myself about two years ago, and I've pretty much stuck to it. So just about every Wednesday, I'm posting a new photo project. Um, but otherwise, you can Google my name, Jesse Fireisen, and it's a pretty unique name. So I'm just about the only thing that comes up. And I'm Jesse Fireisen just about on every on every social media handle. So, so Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Jesse Fire sure. Eisen. Uh, spell it so that people can Google it. Sure. Uh, J-E-S-S-E-F-E-Y-E-R-E-I-S-E-N. And we should say, if you want to go follow him on YouTube, Jesse Fire Eisen uh, Photography on YouTube. Again, yes. all the links are in the show notes. They're in the description on YouTube. Jesse, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad you reached out to me on Twitter <laughs> because it just makes everything easier. I'm glad I did too. This, this was really fun, Steve. I love chatting photography and I had a great time this afternoon. So real quick, before we finish up, I just want everybody to know you can, again, find all the show notes behind the shot.tv or on YouTube. And if you want to follow me behind the shot.tv or my site is stevebrazel.com. Uh, like the country Brazil, but two L's I'm not really on Facebook, but if you head on over to Instagram, Twitter, or Mastodon, cause I've kind of moved a lot to Mastodon from Twitter recently for reasons that might be obvious. It's at Steve Brazel or at Behind the Shot TV. And I end every show with a whiskey pick because I am a whiskey fan. And a lot of the people that I know in photography are whiskey fans. And this time around, I've got one that I honestly think may be one of, if not the best value in bourbons. This is by a company called Bar Barrel Craft Spirits. This is Barrel Vantage. And it is a blend of bourbons, like a lot of the barrel spirits are, finished in Mizunura French and toasted American oak. It's 114.44 proof, so it's got a little bit of a, a heat to it, but it's nothing too bad. And what I love is 
It has been called the absolute best bourbon whiskey between 70 and $80. And that's about where you'll find it usually around 75 to $85 maybe, but it's a great choice. Hands down, one of my favorite whiskeys that's out there. Again, I got to say thank you to my guest, Jesse Firerizen. Thank you so much for joining me for today. You can uh, check out all the episodes at BehindTheShot.tv and make sure you join us next time as we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind the shot. 